Thank you for joining us today for the preaching ministry of Dr. Chris Aiken, Senior Pastor of Inglewood Baptist Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Inglewood is a dynamic ministry reaching Eastern North Carolina and the world with the timeless truth of the gospel. For more information, visit us online at inglewoodbaptist.com. Now here's Pastor Chris with today's message. Amen. Thank you, worship team. Thank you for leading us in worship. Pastor Schuyler, good to have you back on platform and leading us today. Thank you. Hey, let me invite you, if you brought a copy of the scriptures with you, open with me to the book of Hebrews in chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to pick up this morning in verse 9 and finish off chapter 6 today. If you're joining us from somewhere else online, we're grateful for your presence here. And uh, thank you for joining with the family of Inglewood. It's our heart's desire to serve you. And I trust you'll let us know how we could do that in these days ahead. Let me introduce the message to you this way. Every tough school that I've ever attended, whether it's in the military or in business or, hey, ministry, academia, any of those things, they all had... uh, kind of a common thread or characteristic about them, a common practice early on in the course where someone would take time to rehearse for us a warning about the failures of those who didn't make it. And they would go on and and tell us tale after tale, recounting all the difficulties that they had gone through in such a way that by the time that part of the talk was over, you might even ask yourself, is there any hope for me? You ever been in a gathering like that or in a course like that, a training like that? This is yes, this is no, this is I've already tuned out, Chris, you're 45 seconds in. All right. The fact of the matter is we've all probably been in that spot at some place along the way. In fact, you may have recognized some characteristics of that just in the last two messages out of Hebrews. For the last two sections have prompted us to have some really sober considerations. Chapter 5 warned us against dull hearing, what we understood to be a laziness or apathy in the process of growing in our discipleship and our becoming followers of Jesus and becoming like Christ as followers. Chapter 6, which we looked at last week, carried with it a caution against apostasy or turning back or turning away from, falling away from our faith, our hope, from the relationship with the Lord. And you may have walked away from either one of those with with an overwhelming sense that in light of those ominous passages, asking yourself the question, can anybody have security and hope? In this life, I want to tell you the answer is yes. In fact, the writer of Hebrews today reminds us yes and a hundred times yes because he's hopeful about his audience. And in the case he makes, I believe we can find hope as well. We're in Hebrews 6. We're going to begin in verse 9. And I'd like to invite you, if you're able, stand with me in honor of the Word of God. If you're joining us from home, again, welcome. And let me encourage you, we're reading from the New American Standard Translation, and I trust you'll follow along with us. Hebrews 6, and beginning in verse 9, the Scripture begins, But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, 
and things that accompany salvation, though we're speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you've shown toward His name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you'll not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made the promise to Abraham since he could swear by no one greater he swore by himself saying I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you and so Having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Would you pray with me? Father, it's our heart's desire this morning to not only see, but to understand this hope that we have and what it's based in as we look at hope's foundation. Our heart's desire today, Lord, is that for those here or wherever that may be listening that don't have that hope, that today would be the day they move from wishing to hoping. And for those that have yielded their lives to you, who experience hope that today we'd be doubly encouraged by all that's been secured in Christ. So to that end, would you teach us even now? We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you for standing. You be seated. If, hey, if you'd like to follow along, there's an outline that's been made available to you on the app, and we'd love for you to have that so you could follow along in this message entitled, Hope's Foundation. I want to show you three reasons for confidence, three reasons you can have confidence because the writer of Hebrews says he has confidence. So I want to show you three of those reasons. Notice with me, first of all, the confidence that is in faith-filled service. In the way we serve, in our living out our faith, the writer of Hebrews says it is a source of confidence for us. Look at verse 9 again. He says, but beloved, we're convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we're speaking in this way. In what way? Well, in the verses before, he said, you've grown dull of hearing. I can't even teach you the things I want to teach you. And then he said, some of you may be tempted to turn back and turn away from faith. But if you do, it'll be impossible to renew you to repentance. Verse 9, but... Beloved, we're convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we're speaking in this way. Notice how he, he connects that. He says, we're convinced. That word convinced means 
In the original language, as it's used, it means to be persuaded, to have total confidence in, to not sway, not to swagger, not to, uh, not to, uh, to, to be mitigated by anything, but to be completely, fully trusting in. He said, we have every confidence. We're convinced of better things concerning you. Notice in that then, there's nothing in the writer's disposition that would even indicate or imply even the slightest bit of compromise there. There's not a, a modicum of concern or, or, or doubt in him at all. And let me say, since we're reading this at a different era, he's not trying to pump them up. This isn't a Tony Robbins seminar. He's not convincing, he's convinced. He's not trying to get them to believe something that's not true. He's saying, I believe that this is solid. It's trustworthy. I'm convinced of better things concerning you. Notice how he addresses them. He calls them beloved. Word means most loved or prized or dear. It's a term of deep and abiding affection and, uh, and concern of passion. He calls them beloved. Not only does he address them in this way, but notice his expectation. He says, I believe there are better things for you that accompany salvation. Better things? Yes. You could even translate that word superior or best things. And it speaks in the sense of quality or um, condition or effect. He says, I believe that there are better things in the highest of quality, in the best of condition, in the best of outcome. I believe that is true already of you. And these are the things that accompany salvation. That accompany, that go along with. In other words, if you've got one, you've got the other. It's the shoes to its socks. It's the peanut butter to the jelly. It's the Chris to Jody. They go together. He said, these things I'm convinced of concerning you, they accompany salvation. And by the way, that's a present tense word. It's not will be true of you sometime in the future or used to be true of you sometime in the past, but are true of you now. These are the things, the better things that I'm convinced on your behalf of you that accompany salvation. Why did you go off into all that? Because some people think of salvation as this thing I did. They'll say, I, 150 years ago, I was at vacation Bible school. I prayed a prayer with the pastor there, and I'm saved. Well, yippee ki Or they'll say, hey, one day when the roll's called up yonder, I'll be there. I'm going to get to heaven. But they don't like to think about the time in between. Can I tell you, God has saved, God will save, but God is saving. There is a salvation that is evident, that is real, that is practical, that is actual for you and I today. It's present tense. I am convinced of better things concerning you that accompany right now today your salvation. Don't think of salvation as something later or something before, but it's something today. Oh, I know we sometimes get wrapped up in other ways, but God's not abandoned us in that place in between as we sang about. He's not left us to our own devices today. 
He is active and working in our lives today, just as He did then, just as He promises to do here. He's not changed. Chris, can you back that up with anything? You mean besides Hebrews? How about John 10 and verse 10, where Jesus says, the thief, he's coming to kill stuff, to steal, kill, and to destroy. But I have come that you might right now in the present, as we speak, have life and have it to the full, some translations say, or have it abundantly. So is salvation something there? Yes, it is. It is justification of God. It is eternal life. But it's also abundant living. It's also peace in a storm. It's also being able to take a nap in a storm-tossed boat. It is also communion with God. It's also confidence in the mission. Because Jesus said, not even the gates of hell could prevent the church from fulfilling that which he has called us to do. It is a right now assurance of those things that accompany salvation. Where where does he get this confidence? What's that based in? Look at verse 10. It says in verse 10, for God is not unjust. So as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. He says, if you're looking for a place of that confidence, I find it first of all in the justice of God. It starts with the fact that God is absolutely just and God never changes. God does not change his mind. God is not reading the tea leaves and looking for how he's going to feel about something from moment to moment. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. It starts with God not changing his mind. God is, in fact, our firm foundation. God is, in fact, a solid rock. God is, in fact, a sure anchor. And His promises are true, and His character is unimpeachable. Now listen, if you're a rebel, that's as terrifying as it is comforting if you're a saint. Because if you're a saint, that means nothing, nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God. But if you're a rebel, that means God's not going grandpa on you and just overlooking stuff because he thinks you're adorable. He is unchanging. His standard is solid, it's sure, it's fixed, it's secured, and it is unchanging. The writer appeals, first of all, to the justice of God. Then he appeals to the transformation of their lives. He says, it's, uh, it's evident to me, I find security in your work, the Greek word ergon, meaning your labor or your deeds, not your good intentions. You know, that's used as asphalt some places. It's not your good intentions, it's not your good desires, it's not your philosophy, but it's the work that you do. He says, I look at that and I know you must have a changed life or you wouldn't do that. I see it in your work, I see it in your love. The Greek word agape, speaking of that self-sacrificing love, the affection, the loving concern, the God love that is evident in their lives. And he says it's a love toward the name of God. His name being the reputation or his fame or his character, his person. He said you live lives that honor the name of God. And he says not only that, but also in your ministry to the saints. Ministry. It's the Greek word diakonos. It's where we 
get the office of deacon. But now there are folks who do the efforts of deacon who aren't in the office. They're diaconising, they're serving, even though they're not in the office of deacon. He says, I see you, this isn't just written to deacon, this is written to everybody. He says, I see your service to the saints then and how you continue to minister even to this day. How would that give him confidence? Because he knows that to find that quality, that character, those works in a person's life are evidence of transformation because they're contrary to human nature. Human nature doesn't think of others first. Human nature thinks of itself first. Human nature does good things for what it can do for itself. Human nature says, oh, I may feed the homeless, but it's so I don't have to look at them. I may, I may try to get somebody off the street, but it's so I don't have to step over them. It says, I want to bring justice to the world so that I don't, have to, I don't have to live in an unjust place. It's about them. It's not about the glory of God. He says, but I see that it's different for you. You've been transformed. You've going against human nature. You're doing stuff that no person in his flesh would ever do. You know, you get a new nature when you become a follower of Jesus. It's part of the deal. It comes in the package. Ephesians 4, verses 22 to 24, Paul says that in reference to your former life, of your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted, in accordance with the lusts of deceit, the passions of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. He says, when you, get, when you become a Christ follower, when you get saved, God rearranges your priorities in such a way that you quit thinking about you first. Sure, you think of you, but you quit thinking about you first. And you place others ahead of yourself. He says, when I see that in a person's life, I know it had to be God. You can't do that on your own. Romans 5 and verse Excuse me, Romans 8 and verse 5 says, For those who according to the flesh set their minds on the thing of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the Spirit, excuse me, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And then he calls them to a life of discipline, to continue with intentional pursuit to diligence. Look at verses 11 and 12 of our text. He says, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence, discipline, power, pursuit, the same diligence so as to realize, experience the full assurance of hope until the end. So that you'll not be sluggish, think word lazy, you'll not be sluggish or slow, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. He says, I have confidence, but I have confidence in looking at your life. You're different. Your works, your actions. Now, if you're a thinking person, you're probably saying, well, Chris, can't, can't rebels, 
can't evil people act right every once in a while? Well, sure. I mean, even a broken clock's right twice a day. But you can't do it consistently. At some point, it's going to peter out. At some point, it'll be less prominent than the good. It's going to fall off. It's going to disappear. That's why he says, press on, press on, press on. Well, Chris, can't saints blow it from time to time? I blow it. Am I not a saint? No, no, no. Saints can blow it, of course. Well, if that's the case, if rebels can do good and saints can blow it, how do I get confidence in that? That confidence is based not not on a perspective of individual moments, but on a life of ongoing consistency. See, it's not necessarily about the blips on the chart. It's about the trend and where it's going. You may say, my trend line doesn't look like that. It looks more like this. Yeah, but is it not like this? Because see, here's what it said. Apart from God, there's nothing in us that desires Him or desires to do the things of God or be with God even. We're at enmity. He said, you're an enemy of God. That's down in the other way. But he said, you look at your life. And it makes its way up. I wished it went up like that. My life's more like this. You? I mean, it's actually kind of more of an ebb and flow. It's an ebb and flow of our lives where, and we set out to do, and then we don't do, and then we set out not to not do, and we do. Paul said, I do what I don't want to do. I don't do what I want to do. So if I do what I don't want to do and don't do what I want to do, who can set me free from this? Jesus. That's it. So how do you figure that, Chris? If, if, this, is the ebb, if this is the ebb and flow, it's in your heart's desire to have more flow, flow than ebb. That your life would be ebb, flow, flow, flow. Ebb, flow, 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 flow. I guess you would just go with the flow. That you just, you want to go. Now I'm feeling weird. Like with the flow. You don't want any ebb in your life. You hate ebb. Problem is, and not for these people, but there are some who like ebb more than flow. They go, (laughs) I know I'm not supposed to like it, but man, this is good. I like ebb. In fact, oh, I got to change ebb to go to flow? I, that was hard. I don't want to do that. I want to stay over here in my ebb world. If you can live in ebb and ignore the flow, there's, this isn't about you. There's no confidence in that. But there is confidence in faith-filled service. Notice, secondly, he says there's confidence in the Father's promise. Now, he introduced that to us in verse 10 where he spoke of the justice of God. Now he's expanding it. He's saying because God is unchanging and God is righteous, then you, know, then you have to know that his promises are certain. Let me say, can he prove that? God's, God, like an attorney in a courtroom, offers for evidence. He said, enter exhibit A, my servant Abraham. Look at verses 13 to 15. He says, for when God made the promise to Abraham... Since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, 
Abraham, he obtained the promise. Well, do you remember Abraham's story? You first meet him before his name change in Genesis 12. God says to him, arise and leave the land of your fathers, the land of your security. Go to a land that I'll show you as you get there. And I'm going to take care of you and I'm going to bless you. And all those who bless you will also be blessed. And through you, all the earth will be blessed. There's a promise. Genesis 15, Abram says to him, God, I know you said I was going to have descendants and the world's going to be blessed through them, but I, I don't even have an heir, only this servant of mine. God responds, verse 4 of Genesis 15, Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And God took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars. You ever trying to do that? God said, look to the heavens and count the stars if you can. If you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then, verse 6, then Abraham said, that's ridiculous. And flipped the channel to another YouTube station where they could tell him how he could have his best life by Friday. Nope. Verse 6 says, then he believed in the Lord. And he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Then he believed in the Lord. What happened between Genesis 12, 13, 14, and verse 3? I don't know, but I know that in verse 6 he says, Then he believed in the Lord. There must have been a back door to Abram's faith in Genesis 12. I'm going to go, I'm going to do it, but if we get into a hairy spot, I'll... I'll tell everybody she's my sister, not my wife. And that way I can kind of help God get his will done. You know that happened, right? But then he believed in the Lord. And he, God, reckoned it to him as righteousness. God said, you are righteous. And he uses a term, an accounting term. That's what reckoned means. It means in a, in the, on the balance sheet, the credits and debits, he adds them up and then he double lines under the number and says righteous. That's on Abraham's ledger. And he, he pronounced him that way. That's Genesis 15. God promised Abram and he believed and he was counted as righteous. But in chapter 16, he says, I still don't have a son. So he and uh, his wife, Sarah, they conspired together. To take matters into their own hands, Sarah said, take my servant, Hagar, and make a baby with her, but we'll raise the child. It'll be our heir. And he said, I, he was 86 years old. Chapter 17, he's now 99 with a 13-year-old. And God said, says to him, I'm going to do it, reaffirmed his covenant with him. And then said to him, so that everyone will know you believe the covenant, I want you to be circumcised and I want you to circumcise all the males. And Abram did it because he believed God. Well, in the kind of faith of ebb and flow that you and I have now and again. Because while he believed God, nah, he and Sarah said, maybe we need to help you. 
He's 99. And then Genesis 21, verse 1. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. Well, now I know, I know, I know, I know, look at me. I know that's tough to get. We live in a place of microwave popcorn. You're like, man, I, I want it now. God made a promise, where is it? That's what Abram said. And year after year after year after decades slipped by and still no answers. He tried to help God. God said, don't do that. But the promise is solid. And he did it again and again and again and again. He's 99 and God says, you're going to have a baby. Verse 5. Now Abram was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Now, here's what, here's what the writer's trying to tell his audience. God's promises are certain. God's just. If he said it, he's going to do it. You can count on it. Well, what if a year goes by? God hadn't changed. What if two years goes by? Still hadn't changed. Three years still hadn't changed. Five years still hadn't changed. Ten years still hadn't changed. He excuses Abram from the witness stand. Because he talks not only about God's past performance, but also God's ultimate authority. Look at verses 13 to 15. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, Abraham obtained the promise. It was common to swear by someone or something greater than yourself. Uh, to, to just affirm it. It's to say, hey, I know you don't believe me, but I, I promise on my mother's grave. I promise on my, you just fill in the blank. I swear by the temple in Jerusalem. I swear by heaven. I swear by, and they would do that. And then that was supposed to invoke stuff. God said, I looked around to see who I could swear by that was greater than me. There was none. So I swore by myself. He said, in case you were wondering who the ultimate is, it's me. And if my word weren't good enough, so you'd get it, I just swore by myself. Now, Jesus tells us, y'all don't have to do that. He said, that's crazy talk. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, he tells us, listen to this. If you like these things, just jot down verses 33 and following. Jesus said, you've heard, the an- you've heard that the ancients were told you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you... <clears throat> Make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for that's the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you can't make one hair white or black. But let your statement be, yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. I'd say weird. Anything else is just weird. It's evil. Yet God said, y'all can't handle what I'm trying to tell you. So in order to accommodate the frailty of human language, the the weakness of our faith, the, the understanding of our own convictions, and to show his promise was sure in the language of men, he said, there's none greater, so I swear by myself. Now, 
Not only are we to pin our hopes to our faith-filled service and our hopes in the Father's promises, but notice number three, he says you can have confidence in a faithful Messiah. You not only have confidence in the changed life that you're having that's experiencing fruit, not only in the fact that God said it and God says it, and he's in charge and always carries it out, but you can have confidence in a faithful Messiah. Drop down to verse 19 of our text. He said, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to to the order of Melchizedek. See, we're going to get back to Melchizedek, but he says, you have a hope, and that hope is hooked to an anchor. That word hope, it's the Greek word elpis, elpis, and it means confidence or expectation. It's not a hope in our hope, but it's our hope in the object of our hope. Why do you tell us that? Because if you're of the, if you're of the religious television stripe, some dude will tell you, if you just believe enough, God's going to give you what you want, prove it, send me your credit card number. If you don't get your answer, it wasn't on me, it was on you. That's Greek word, hogwash. That's not at all what he said. It's not hope and hope, it's hope in the one who can fulfill our hope. He said, you have a hope and it's entered into the veil where he's anchored himself. This hope is an anchor for our soul, he says. Now, you know what an anchor is. An anchor is a firm. It is an immovable point to which we tie off or we tether ourselves so we don't slip. So many images. You could think of the ship, the, the guy out sailing, and he comes to the end of the evening, and he says, I want to wake up where I go to sleep. So he drops his anchor, and he hooks his boat up. He said, no matter where the wind blows, he doesn't wake up in the middle of somewhere else. He says, Jesus is our anchor. You don't have to drift around. Or we could talk about those who climb mountains, who scale rock faces on a hill and You'll see climbers partway up where they'll, they'll, they'll drill, they'll place an anchor point into the face of the rock that's solid. And when they do, they hook their rope to it. And as they get to a crack between two rocks, they'll wedge another anchor point there and they'll hook their rope to it. Why? Because they might get to a place where they slip and they fall back, but they'll never fall farther than the anchor because the anchor holds them. But can I tell you, I'm neither a sailor nor a mountain climber. I've not done either one of those things. But now, I have done a little rappelling in my day. In fact, dressed up like a tree once, the army sent me to a school to teach me to do that. And there's something about being in, the, being in an aircraft with several other people and having a rappel master say to you, go ahead and lean out of this thing. It's at that moment you think, man, I hope I put a good seat on and that that thing's tied right. Oh, it's good. You hope, man, that rope that they gave me, it's good rope. Yep, that's your hope rope. 
But all the hope in the world and the best seat in the world won't do you a bit of good if you don't have a strong anchor. So the thing you're really concerned with is when you hook that rope to the anchor that it's locked on, that it's fixed and it's sure. Because if the anchor holds, you'll hold. And when you lean out of that aircraft and they tell you to jump, you know you're not making your last bound. You'll jump out and the anchor will hold. And then you can let yourself down to the ground. If the anchor gives way, you're dead. You'll make your last landing. Writer Hebrews said, you needed an anchor. So he walked through the veil. And he planted his feet. And he said, you can hang on to me. I'm the one that'll save you. I'm the one that is faithful. I'm the one that if you'll hook your life to me, you will not fail. Oh, my hope is so weak. I don't care if you're being held on by a spool of thread. The anchor will not turn loose of you if you won't turn loose of the anchor. The anchor is our lifeline. Our hope of a righteous relationship with God is based not on the fickleness of our feelings. It's based not on the appropriateness of our actions. It's based not on the sincerity of our supplication. It's not how good you pray. It's based on the fitness of our forerunner. When Jesus stepped into the holy place on our behalf, he didn't bring an offering made with a, a blood of bulls and goats as though this second-rate offering was our anchor point. No, sir, he brought his life, he brought his blood, and he poured it out and he laid it as an offering before the Father on the mercy seat. And he said, this is what they're anchored to, and I brought it to you, and it's, this is sufficient. And it was sufficient, and it is sufficient, and it'll always be sufficient. He said, that's the anchor. It satisfies to the uttermost every single solitary sin. It settles the sin of your adultery. It settles the sin of your addiction. It solves and settles the sin of anger. It settles your abortion. It settles your murder. It settles your blasphemy. It settles your faithlessness. It was and is the one sacrifice that fully appeases and then overflows with mercy. And by the way, since Jesus was dead but didn't stay dead and lives, that anchor is not elusive. It would be terrible to know that there's a solution and he said, we're playing hide and go seek, go see what you can do about finding it. But he didn't call us to go look for something that we could not find. He sent one who came to us and extended a hand through the darkness, past the difficulties, within the weeds of discouragement, and said, here I am, take my hand. Come to me if you're weary and burdened. I'll give you 
rest. He's not elusive. He's a seeking God and an anchor behind the veil. That's the truth, I think, that was in the hymn writer's heart. It's the truth that gives us this confidence. Marvelous grace of our loving God. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured. There where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Y'all know this one? Help me on the chorus, would you? Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all my sin. Not some of your sin. Not a little bit of your sin. Not most of your sin. Not 99 and 44 one-hundredths of your sin, but all of your sin. And it's by His grace. It's not by your effort. It's not by your intention. It's not by your philosophy. It's not by your petition. It's by God's grace. 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 You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. But it wasn't about your deserving. It was about the Father's heart sending His sufficient Son to satisfy our debt and extend a hand and say, come to me. And you taking His hand. The great hope of the Scriptures and the hope of all of these believers is not in our efforts. It's not in our philosophy, but it's in the grace of God that results in fruitful lives, that rises up from the Father's promises and is anchored firmly to our faithful Messiah. Do you know that grace? Would you pray with me? Thank you for joining us today. We hope this message has been a blessing. If today's message has prompted you to consider a next step with God, we would love to assist you. Simply drop by our website at inglewoodbaptist.com next or give us a call at 252-937-8254 and let us know how we can assist you. If today's message was an encouragement to you, let me encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you consume this content. That really helps us reach a wider audience with the life-changing hope of Jesus Christ. We hope you will join us next week. And until next time, may the Lord bless you.